This morning I'd ask you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Matthew, the fifth chapter and the eighth verse. Matthew 5, verse 8. Matthew chapter 5, verse 8. This is the word of God and it is eternally true. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. This is the sixth beatitude, the beatitude in which Jesus promises that those shall see God who are what? Who are pure in heart. God himself is glorious in holiness, and we know that he cannot look upon sin. He is perfect, and he has commanded his sons and daughters to be perfect just as he is. Thus, the Lord Jesus gives us this promise that the pure in heart will see him. Now, as we come to this beatitude, we find immediately a danger connected with it that we must carefully avoid. Jesus is not saying here in any way that it is possible in this life to have complete purity. The best purity that we will ever have, even those among us who have the greatest faith, is the purity of the statue of Nebuchadnezzar that had the feet that cracked, the purity of a preacher who, while proclaiming the word of God, is a jar of clay. We cannot be perfect and sinless as the Lord God is, and yet we are commanded by him to do just that, to be perfect as he is perfect. Those who say that it's possible to be perfect and with undivided heart and to have complete sanctification in this life are not only themselves deeply misled, but they mislead many, many others into uh, much sin and heartbreak. I have known through the years uh, increasingly of the terrible destruction that's caused in the souls of people who have been raised in churches where everything is dishonest and where they are taught to put on their makeup or to uh, dress well with ties and coats and uh, who may be taught that they're to wear only dresses and to put their hair up in buns. And behind all of these external things is a teaching that purity of heart consists of uh, convincing yourselves and others most entirely through externals that you're holy, that you're sanctified, that you are perfect. And so children grow up with an expectation of things in the church and in their hearts that are absolutely never going to come this side of heaven. In the same way that the advertisements that you watch and read and see in magazines create an expectation in every area of your life that is completely false and that you will never have. Satan lies, and one of the ways that his lies are effective is causing great discouragement on the part of people who believe that as we are born again by God's Spirit and have regeneration and it's a completed work of Jesus Christ that is applied to us and changes us from death to life, so sanctification at that or a later time comes to us and transfers us from impurity and sin to purity and holiness and sanctification and that they're both acts which uh, can be completed in this life. And it is a lie it is destructive and it creates untold damage in the minds and hearts of many believers. My first direct awareness of this was when I was at University of Wisconsin in Madison and I used to go to the library mall, which was the hanging out place right in the middle of campus and watch a preacher and listen to him named Judd Smock. And many of you have heard him at various times here at Indiana University. And I had a great admiration for Jed um, because 
he was fearless, and yet when he was opposed and sometimes physically violently, when I was present, I saw him battered by uh, men. There was never the slightest indication of anger or hostility, but he was calm and he continued to love and to call to repentance those who were in his presence. But one day I was very disappointed when he would sometimes uh, engage in uh, back and forth exchanges with people that were in his audience. And somebody was trying to get at him and asking him, well, you tell us our sins, but what about your sins? Brother Smock, don't you have any sins? And he didn't want to answer the question. He kept trying to avoid it. And then finally, uh, backed into a corner, he felt like he had to respond. And so when the person asked him, do you ever sin? You talk about our sins. Do you ever sin? He hemmed and hawed, trying to slip out of it, but his question was persistent, and in time, Jed was pushed into the corner, and hesitantly he professed that so far as he knew, he had no sin in his heart. And I was dumbstruck at the time. I had never heard anyone make such a claim. I knew intellectually that there were many churches that believed in complete sanctification. And I remember being in a ministerial association meeting that was in our church, and sitting with one of the men in the community who was a pastor in a Wesleyan church there. And I knew that this was part of Wesleyan doctrine. And one day, for some reason, the subject of sanctification came up, and I asked this brother whether he believed that he was perfect. And I was greatly relieved when he hemmed and hawed and said that, no, in fact, uh, he did not make that claim himself. And I thought, all right. I can talk to him. I can continue to be his friend. As I knew he wasn't perfect. (laughs) I was glad he knew it. Well, as I said, now, years later, I understand that there are many followers of Jesus Christ who do believe that perfection is possible in this life and not just possible, but commanded and commanded in passages just such as this. They would say if Jesus promises that only those who are pure will see God, then he means what he says. He doesn't say those who are partly pure and partly impure, but he says pure. Well, this is what the sixth beatitude does not mean. It does not mean that we in this life can have the perfection of God, but it is a command. We are commanded to have the perfection. Of God. And so what's going on here? Well, in this life, no person is pure like God. There are varying degrees of imperfection. Some attain to a very, very beautiful level of perfection, but they are far from pure. I, I bring this up for obvious reasons. Anybody that's here in our, in our congregation this morning, if you're not a visitor... Uh, I bring it up because I would put my dear friend Rita Cuffey at the top of those I have known who have had pure hearts. What is purity of heart? Well, you know, there are many people who are polite. But politeness is not purity of heart. There are many people who, in every situation, like Miss Manners, know exactly what the proper thing to do is. Many people who never raise their voices and never throw their rolls across the dining room. They always use their napkin. But Thomas Watson says civility is not purity. It's one of the great dangers in America today in our feminized society is to think that the gentleman is pure in heart, but the gentleman often is a coward and lives to please women and not God. Purity of heart is not chivalry, it's not politeness, it's not mismanners, although I do believe that there are many things about manners that are pure and that are right. Also, purity of heart is not a simple profession of faith. There are many who claim to live by faith in Jesus Christ whose hearts are stone. Purity of manners, purity of doctrine do not constitute purity of heart. 
There are many Reformed believers who can rattle off the five points of Calvinism, the order of salvation, maybe the Ten Commandments, who can rattle off all the responses to the shorter and maybe some of the larger catechism. I can tell you what R.C. Sproul says on this and Calvin on that and Luther on the other thing. Who can describe for you the difference between the view of the presence of Christ and the sacraments with the Roman Catholics and the Lutherans and the Presbyterians and the Baptists. But this is not the purity of heart that's being spoken of. The purity of heart that's being spoken of here is a purity that goes to the very depths of a man. It goes down to his desires and his affections. It's not a purity that's content living in words or in actions. It's not content to live on his shirt sleeve. As long as we live in this world, moment by moment, we will be faced with the gross reality of that condition spoken of so directly in so many places of Scripture, the wickedness of the human heart. And not just any human heart, but our human heart, the heart even indeed of a Christian. And I want to remind us of the desperate condition that drives us to seek and to hear God calling us to the purity of heart. We must recognize that this is something we need and do not have. This is why we have the exhortation of our Lord to embrace it. Scripture first teaches us that from the moment of conception that we are impure. Those who have ever fallen into a serious sin love Psalm 51. And it teaches us many things. But David, in the midst of speaking of his sin and confessing it to God, says this in verse 4, Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you are proved right when you speak and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. And so from the very moment of conception, we are sinful. We are sinful from the time that our mother conceived us. And then when we're a child, as we follow it through chronologically, we many times see what Scripture says about children. Proverbs 22.15 says, Folly is bound up in the heart of a child, but the rod of discipline will drive it far from him. One of the great dangers of raising children is to give in to the uh, sentimentality that's so pervasive about childhood today. And I have myself seen back in Wisconsin in my Uh, One of my two churches, uh, (laughs) the fond grandmother's absolute rejection of the doctrine of original sin and the view she has of the little ones in the church. And uh, maybe she's far enough removed from the raising of her own son. I'm thinking of one particular woman that uh, she could think that these other children that she doesn't have to live with 24 hours a day are perfect that they don't have sin bound up in their hearts. But an honest mother will recognize the minute she starts getting to know her child that there's no such thing as a child that has a clean heart. Children are unbelievably selfish and obstinate. And uh, even very cute children are... uh, Stubborn and obstinate. Even Cynthia Spady in the waiting room of the critical care room yesterday was stubborn and obstinate. And so in the womb and right after we come out of the womb, And in fact, the Bible teaches us that prior to regeneration, we are what? The Bible teaches us that we're slaves to Satan. This is the teaching of Scripture. In Romans 6, 
We are told, don't you know that when you offer yourselves to someone to obey him as slaves, you are slaves to the one whom you obey, whether you are slaves to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin, you wholeheartedly obeyed the form of teaching to which you were entrusted. You have been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. I put this in human terms because you are weak in your natural selves. Just as you used to offer the parts of your body in slavery to impurity and to ever-increasing wickedness, so now offer them in slavery to righteousness leading to holiness. Very clear here what it says about our condition outside of Christ and prior to our being born again by the Spirit of God. Prior to regeneration, we are slaves to sin. And it's not just some people, but all men and women are in bondage to these chains of sin and death. In Psalm 14, verse 1, it says, The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt, their deeds are vile, there is no one who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the sons of men to see if there are any who understand, any who seek God. And here's the answer. All have turned aside. They have together become corrupt. There is no one who does good. Not even one. And then in Romans 3.10, in case we think that this is an Old Testament doctrine that it doesn't carry over, in Romans 3.10, as it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. And then if we don't understand that statement, it's expanded upon. Verse 11, there is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. And then in case we don't understand it, it goes on. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. And in case we don't get it, it's expanded. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways, and the way of peace they do not know. And then it's summarized with verse 18, which says, There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now, be honest. Can you think of a better description of the United States of America? There's no fear of God before our eyes. It's obvious. How could we have the magazines with the headlines that are on them and our checkout stands at our grocery stores if there were a fear of God before our eyes? You imagine Jesus Christ walking through the checkout stand of Kroger. Would he stop and read the headlines of the National Enquirer or Cosmopolitan? And so it's not some people, it's not people who lived in Nazi Germany or who today live in Iraq, it's not Hollywood, it's not the offices of Walt Disney, it's not Washington, it's not Wheaton, and it's not Bloomington on the campus of IU and in the frat houses, but it's here. This is God's diagnosis of us. And if we think that because we're believers and are here in church on a morning when anybody would have had a good excuse to avoid it, we are taught that after regeneration, Christian men and women still find within themselves a law of sin and death, which does torment us and which does constantly seduce us to dishonor and to rebel against the very Lord and Savior who has bought us with his own blood. In Romans 7:21, Paul so wonderfully reassures us that we are not insane. When he writes, So I find this law at work, when I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being I delight in God's law, but I see another law at work in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin. At work within my members. What a wretched man I am. 
Who will rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself, in my mind, am a slave to God's law, but in the sinful nature, a slave to the law of sin. And so after regeneration, there are a number of places in Scripture that show us exactly what we are and exactly why it was that the Son of God had to give himself as an offering for sin and had to, with his own precious blood, purchase our redemption from his Father, turning aside his wrath. We are taught that the day that we look towards for the final destruction of this law of sin and death, which is still at work within us, is not today if we really work hard at mortification or if we go off into the desert of northern Africa, if we sit on top of a column and use a line to lift the food up and put it down, that those who sit in trees have not somehow become perfectly sanctified, those who live by themselves and don't need the reminder of a husband or wife of what a sinner they are. But rather the day that we look when we will be holy as He is holy is that day, the day of the Lord when we will see Him face to face. Christians desire three things with respect to sin. Justification, that it might not condemn. Sanctification, that it might not reign and glorification that it might not be. (laughs) And of course, as I preach this morning, what a glorious day there is for Rita. So often, in the work of the pastorate and the eldership, we have to meet with people who have hardened their hearts against God. And always a part of hardening your heart against God is that your heart becomes double-minded. You, you give yourself to lies and to manipulation and deception. and You begin to think that you're a good person. You begin to speak that way. It's very sad to be exchanging emails or be in a counseling session or be in a home visitation with somebody who has completely gone to self-deception. Their heart has been turned against God. And then to hear them claiming righteousness. And then to think of Rita. (laughs) Some of you might have somebody that's even better to think of, but my paragon of virtues was Rita. And I would sit there listening to someone or reading them claiming righteousness. And you'd think of Rita. And you'd think, oh my goodness, shut your mouth. Can you really believe the things that you're saying when Rita would be the first person with Paul to confess that in herself she found at work the law of sin and death. Rita who would always be completely willing to hear any rebuke from the pulpit in person. Rita herself was the first to rebuke herself who would come and speak of various sins that were uh, were in her heart that she wanted to rid herself of and that she didn't know how to do. And so we see in Scripture that those who believe that they already have received purity of heart are simply self-deceived because... The purity of heart that we all seek is only partly present in this life, but is promised fully on that day when we will stand in the presence of God and we will be glorified and we will be done with sin, as Rita, we believe, by faith now is. The Bible tells us that one sure indication of a a desperately sick heart is a heart that claims to be without sin. In 1 John 1.8, it says, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. In James chapter 3, when it speaks of the danger of taking on the job of preaching and teaching and being an elder in the church, it says 
just in passing as a way of exposing the danger to us. It says all of us often go wrong. All of us often go wrong. And if we were in confusion about the doctrinal statements, all we would need to do is go to Scripture and look at the great heroes of the faith. And the best of them had feet of clay. The best of them were passing off their wives as their sisters. The best of them were looking off at a time when they should have been making war and thinking of making love instead and then killing the husband. The best of them were Abraham and Noah and Moses and David and Solomon who multiplied wives at the end of his life. Jonah, who ran and then had a pity party. Peter and James and John, the disciples who at the time of the Last Supper, were arguing among themselves as to which of them would be the greatest. It's amazing when we today have somebody like Rita in our midst and we convince ourselves that we are holy and that we have no need of rebuke, that we should be above being corrected by any Christian. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And if you'll look at chapter 5 with me and see the progression of the Beatitudes, and you'll see verse 3, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And we know we're poor in spirit. We see the poverty of our souls. We don't think that we're rich already. And then we look at verse 4. Blessed are those who mourn, having seen the condition, our poverty. We then mourn and we grieve over the chasm between ourselves and the holiness without which no man shall see God. And then we become gentle because... If we've seen our poverty and if we mourn, how can you be harsh when you understand your condition and then you hunger and thirst for righteousness? And you're merciful to others because you know the mercy you need from God. And then, as you give yourselves to these spiritual disciplines, you become pure in heart. And you see God. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And so what is this purity of heart? We've seen what it isn't, and we know that we are not born with it and that it is a constant struggle in this life. But what is it? Well, does it mean simply that our thought life is to be rated G? Well, yeah, but it means an awful lot more than that. Purity of heart can be explained by thinking of a creek that flows from a spring. The spring gives out crystal clear water, and the creek, too, then has clear water. It's not clouded by mud. It doesn't have PCBs in it. It doesn't have oil from industrial pollution. You can drink from it crystal clear. No imperfections causing it to be compromised. It's pure. And this is how our hearts are to be. They are to be uncompromised and pure. In Psalm 24, verse 3, Who may ascend the hill of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? And here's the answer. He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to an idol or swear by what is false. And so the psalmist tells us we cannot expect to come into the house of the Lord and worship him when our hearts are impure, when our hearts are compromised by clinging to an idol at the very moment we are claiming to worship the true God, because this is being double-tongued and double-hearted. It is to be impure. The psalmist tells us we can't expect to come into the house of the Lord to worship him when we swear falsely this is impurity. We have to have purity of hearts. And it's not enough to have purity in our minds or bodies 
It's not enough to have clean thoughts or correct thoughts or proper thoughts. It's not enough to have the sepulcher whitewashed as all the Pharisees specialized in. But our hearts must be pure. That place inside of us which is the matrix or the vortex or the center or the, the, the very core of our being where our minds and our wills and our emotions and everything meet. And when you go there and you find that is pure, purity of heart, then you begin to see what it is that our Lord speaks of here. And yet the normal condition of our heart is accurately spoken of in Jeremiah 17.9 where it says that the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? And so we know that when a heart becomes pure and holy... It is really quite a miracle. Purity of heart is singleness of heart. In Psalm 86.11, the prayer, Teach me your way, O Lord, and I will walk in your truth. Give me what? Rita isn't here to answer, so some of you are going to have to pick up her responsibility of speaking up from knowledge of the word. A lot of responsibilities that you're going to have to pick up now. You know that, don't you? Teach me your way, O Lord, and I will walk in your truth. Give me an undivided heart that I may fear your name. Isn't that curious? Give me fear of you that I might have an undivided heart, but that's not the way it puts it. Give me an undivided heart. In other words, an undivided heart is a heart that fears God. Isn't that true? When you're on the campus, those of you who are students or work at IEO, can you think of anything that would give you a more pure heart than being done finally with any fear of man? And when your heart is pure, it's undivided, and you don't have to think about whether or not you'll have the approval of your peers or your professors The only thing that matters to you is whether you have the approval of God. When we have purity of heart, what we do and what we say and what we think and what we love are all the same. We're not hypocrites. We're not sneaky. We're not manipulators. We have no guile. Not a wonderful statement. If somebody were to say of you, he is a man in whom there is what? No guile. None. Purity of heart. We're to be sincere. Certainly God is never fooled when our heart is impure and we try to present a clean exterior, but the inside is lousy. In 1 Samuel 16:7, the Lord said to Samuel, Do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things man looks at. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And when we come to the ministry of the Lord Jesus in this life, we see the constant terrible conflict between him and the religious leaders of the time. And at the center of it was what? He was constantly giving them the message that they were oh so clean in tithing their mint and common, but they neglected the weightier matters of the law. They were so devout in publicly appearing to be praying, receiving the accolades of the sycophants that surrounded them, of giving themselves to grim and, and burdensome facial expressions and body movements when they were fasting, of Everything they did was for show, but there was no singleness and purity of heart. And so it is true, the Lord looks at the heart and the Lord looked at their hearts and said, I tell you that unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never see heaven. The man who is not pure in heart is blind because of his impurity. He is blind to the truth and blind to the supreme good of knowing God. Greed keeps him from seeing his love of money and the way that he takes advantage of the poor. If he tries to love both God and money, his heart's pollution, his heart's double-mindedness 
keeps him from acts of liberality towards the needy and from supporting the work of God's kingdom. The man who is lustful is kept from seeing that adultery is a highway to death and that no one returns from it. His efforts to mix love of God and love of flesh keep him from being able to rejoice in the wife of his youth. And he thinks he's free. Sin blinds us to God and to his truth, but the man who is impure in heart will not see God. But then again, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. We are to avoid hypocrisy, to run from duplicity, from speaking with a double tongue. We are to cling to God's truth. But it's not enough to avoid being sincerely wrong. If our hearts are pure, they must be sincerely right in everything that God has commanded us to believe and to do. In 1 Peter 1.22, we read, Now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth so that you have sincere love for your brothers, love one another deeply from the heart. And this is what it means to purify ourselves. Our hearts must be single. Our hearts must be clean. Our hearts must avoid impurity and lack of cleanliness. In truth, the only persons who will see God are those who recognize the complete impurity of their heart and seek above all else to purify it. John Calvin, at the beginning of the Institute, says that all of religion consists of two things, to know God and to know ourselves. Well, if the purpose of religion is to see God, then Christianity says that only those people who are the same inside as they are outside may see God. 1 John 1.5, this is the message we have heard from him and declare to you. God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. And so there is our vision of God. But then Hebrews 12.14 says, Make every effort to live in peace with all men and to be holy. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. So if this is purity of heart, and if it is commanded by the character of God our Father, what tools are there to help us get purity of heart? Well, you could look at Rita's life. You could look at the life of any of the saints through time. Read their biographies, and it's pretty predictable what the tools are. First, we must read the Bible often and devote ourselves to its truths. These are the suggestions of the Puritan divine Thomas Watson. He points out that this matter of reading the Bible is central to purity of heart. John 17:17. 17, 17, Sanctify them in the truth. Thy word is truth. Make them holy. Make them pure in the truth. Your word is truth. Psalm 119.9 How can a young man keep his way pure? By keeping it according to your word. And then some of you have memorized the verse. What is the next statement? Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. As we devote ourselves to God's word, we will become pure. The Bible is pure, and the Bible makes us pure as we look into it. Second, we must take a bath, or rather two baths. We must bathe in the tears of repentance, and we must bathe in the blood of of Jesus Christ. We see in Scripture this theme of repentance so constantly. But there is a repentance that is not godly, that simply consists of earthly sorrow. But there is a repentance that consists of godly tears. Think, for instance, of Peter after he denied the Lord. Think of his tears. Think of Mary Magdalene. And at the very moment when the religious prudes were sitting there saying he would not let her make such a fool of herself going on like that, if he knew what kind of woman she was, and she had tears of repentance, 
And with them she washed the Lord's feet. The person who's going to have purity of heart is going to devote themselves to the Word. And as they do that, they're going to see their need for a Savior. And they're going to have tears of repentance. They are going to mourn. They are going to be sad as they see their sin. And that sadness will lead them to what? That sadness will lead them to the Lord's table. That sadness will lead them to drink the cup of the blood of our Savior. Because they know that nothing can wash away our sin except the blood of Jesus. Nothing can make us whole within except the blood of Jesus. And you see, this is the rhythm of worship. When you go into a church and the rhythm of worship is to start with happy clappy and to end with happy clappy, you know that you have not been in a church that has a vision of the supreme good of God. Because the rhythm of worship is to grasp a picture of the glory of God and to immediately grieve over the disparity, the tremendous chasm and gap that there is between us, the best among us in God. And then to go to the blood of Christ and to drink of it. And then to have joy. Because there is therefore no condemnation now for those who are in Christ Jesus. And this is the rhythm of worship. This is the rhythm of the soul that knows God, that is pure in heart. It never puts its hand up and says, away from this conviction of sin. But it realizes it can't have the joy of the blood of Christ. It can't have the clean conscience that's been washed by that blood. It can't have faith until it has been driven by the law to weep and to mourn and to grieve over its sin. And it doesn't look at somebody who's grieving over their sin as being in possession of a psychosis or a neurosis or a bad childhood. Uh, it doesn't look at them as being somebody who is uh, probably in a legalistic church. It looks at them as someone who's been given the tremendous gift of having the ability to be brought under conviction of sin and to repentance. Someone who can join that great cloud of witnesses of Peter and Mary Magdalene who cry over the feet of their Savior. And Jesus says, those who have been forgiven much love much. All this talk of love America has today. What a, what a scandal. The one thing you know America knows nothing of is love. The more the songs have it in the titles and the words, the more you know that it's all a lie. All of the praise songs that are written talking about loving Jesus and singing in breathy tones. Well, I'm not going to say that they're all false. But boy, if you ever go to a, a Bible study where the only thing that's spoken of and sung of is, is the love of Jesus and, and you haven't been brought to see the holiness of God, how can you appreciate the love of our Lord made manifest through the pouring out of his blood if you don't understand that it was our sin that drove him to the cross? This is not just little peccadillos that Jesus worked in our behalf for. It's not small things. It's that we are desperately wicked. And so, when you, in the pattern and the rhythm of Scripture, with Peter, with Mary Magdalene, when you, when you fall on your face before a holy God and you, and you cry righteous and biblical and, and, and pure heart tears, then you come and you take another bath, you bathe again, and you bathe in the blood of Christ. And we all know, those of us who knew Rita, that her favorite hymns centered in the blood of Christ. And she was a delightfully cheerful woman. You see, there was no false uh, you know, self-flagellation in Rita wasn't walking around wearing a hair shirt and beating herself with a whip with pieces of steel at the back. I was probably less than diplomatic yesterday, right after she died. But 
as we cried, but realized the glory of Rita, all of a sudden I had this picture of Rita watching us in that room. And I have no question that Rita would have had a very droll saying that would have made us laugh. Uh, I don't know what it would have been, but Rita would have quickly recalled us back to the fact that these are just bodies and we're just passing through. And she's home now, so cheer up. <laughs> I can even hear her saying that. And you see, she's, she's come through the blood and she realizes what she is and so she makes a joke. And you realize humor is a distinctly Christian gift? You realize that Christians are the ones that can laugh as Rita laughed? Because we are able to honestly look at the huge gap between what we know we were made to be and what we actually are, and humor is what mediates that gap. And so Rita was maybe most pious when she was cracking jokes. Because Rita was humble. And she knew that the good would be there and not here. There were many good things here, and she gave us many of them in this church. We need to bathe in the tears of repentance and then in the blood of our Lord. We need to devote ourselves to the word, wash in tears and the blood of Christ, and we need to reach out to the Lord with faith. Because when we give ourselves to the blood of Christ, it is by faith. It is that we look on Jesus and we realize that he is the balm in Gilead. He is the one who heals all our diseases. He is the one who has promised every good thing to us. Watson says, nothing can have a greater force and efficacy upon the heart to make it pure than faith. Faith will remove mountains, the mountains of pride and lust and envy. Faith and the love of sin are inconsistent. And so as we devote ourselves to the word, as we wash, as we give ourselves to faith, as we seek after the Holy Spirit, we will then run away from the wicked. We will not walk in the counsel of the wicked, stand in the path of sinners, sit in the seat of scoffers. But our delight will be in the law of the Lord, and on his law we will meditate day and night. We will avoid the wicked, and instead we will run towards the godly. In Proverbs 13.20 we read that he who walks with wise men will be wise, but the companion of fools will suffer harm. And then we will pray for purity. With David, we will pray, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence, and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. And this is the life of the Christian. The life of the Christian is not praying the sinner's prayer and then living the way he wants. The life of a Christian is a life of seeking purity of heart. And everything that that involves... And then what's the promise? The promise is they shall see God. Isn't it wonderful to think today of Rita seeing God? Can you imagine her cherubic face? Imagine how big her grin was. You say, oh, come on, Tim, don't be so sentimental about Rita. She's just a woman. No, <laughs> She's not. When the Lord gave us Rita, he gave us a gift that is rare. You imagine how embarrassed she'd be right now. And so it's fitting for us today to meditate on what she has received, her reward. And I'm just going to read a few scriptures that point that reward out to us. 1 Corinthians 13:12. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully, just as I have been fully known. 1 John 3:2. 
Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. Isaiah 33:17. Your eyes will see the king in his beauty. Psalm 17:15. As for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. I will be satisfied with your likeness when I awake. 1 Peter 1.8 Though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you rejoice greatly with joy inexpressible and full of glory. Jesus says, therefore, you too have grief now, but I will see you again and your heart will rejoice and no one will take your joy away from you. Matthew twenty-five twenty-one. his master said to him, well done. Good and faithful slave. You were faithful with a few things. Actually, Rita was faithful with more things than anybody I've ever known. This woman had more gifts and more natural abilities. But more on that another time. You were faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. And then what? Enter into the joy of your master. Psalm 1611. In your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand, there are pleasures forever. Psalm 17:15. As for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. I will be satisfied with your likeness when I awake. Job 19, 25 and 26. As for me, I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will take his stand on the earth. Even after my skin is destroyed, yet from my flesh I shall see God. If you think that God gave roses so that a man might see the beauty of his wife, and if you think that he gave us snow so that we might be reminded of what it is to be pure in heart and to be washed with the blood of Christ and clean, And if you think he gave us fathers to lead us to know the father from whom all fatherhood gets its name. And if you think he gave us the Lord's Supper to remind us of the body and the blood of our Lord that purchased our redemption. If you see the heavens declaring the glory of God, then it's not perverse, but it honors her maker for us to see in Rita a slave of all who was pure in heart and who now sees God. (laughs) Let's pray.